to the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. May God give us ears to hear his word. When I was maybe three or four years old, I was taught a very well-known and basic principle for life. It goes this way, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Raise your hand if you were taught that principle as a child. Almost everybody. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I learned that when I was a young child, and then I spent about the next decade discovering that it was actually a lie from the pit of hell. Growing up, I heard people say to me, I hate you. You're dumb, you're ugly, and all sorts of unmentionable things that shouldn't be said from a pulpit. And what I discovered is that these words had an enormous impact on me. To my surprise, they did hurt me. They shaped me. They influenced me in the way that I looked at myself. But thankfully, growing up, I also heard other words. I heard, I love you. You're good at this or that. You're gifted at this or that. Most importantly, I heard the words that Jesus died and rose again for your sins. And again, those words shaped me. They influenced me and made me in large part who I am today. Our words have enormous power, unbelievable power if you think about it. Uh, From a secular perspective, words are just sounds, almost like animals barking. But from God's perspective, our words have the power to make and break relationships, to form and end marriages, to abuse and improve children, to get us thrown in prison and to get us exonerated. They even have the power to get us killed. In a way, every single day, we're experiencing the truth of Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now, if our words have this kind of power, it should not surprise us at all to hear that God's words have even more power, infinitely more power. The words of God convey the very power of God, and therefore they can kill and they can make alive. They can wound and they can heal, and they can accomplish great and mighty things that we can't conceive of. It was through speaking powerful words that God created the universe out of nothing. It was by speaking powerful words that God cursed Adam and Eve, and by implication, the entire human race for our rebellion. It was through powerful words that God began unfolding his plan of salvation, promising that one who had crushed the serpent's head. It was through powerful words that God summoned Noah to his mission, that God called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees, that God raised up Moses to redeem the people of Israel, and that God did a thousand other things through his word, as recorded in the Bible. Really, you think about it, God's primary tool for accomplishing things are words. So we shouldn't be surprised at all that when Jesus, the eternal Son of God, comes into the world, what is one of the names by which he is known? The Word of God. But what if all this concern about words is going a bit overboard? And what if we're just being a little excessive, maybe a little OCD, by being interested in the very words God spoke? What if when it comes to the Bible, it's really not the words so much as it is the big concepts that God gave us? Is that an acceptable view of the Bible? To view the big ideas as coming from God, but not all the individual words? That's the very question we're going to be considering in today's sermon. Now today, as you can see, this is the sixth installment in our current series on the trustworthiness of the Bible. 
So far, we've studied 10 powerful reasons why you can and should believe the Bible comes from God. They're all listed there in the back of your notes this morning. I won't reiterate them for time. But 10 powerful reasons, and this morning we're going to assume those 10 reasons. We're going to assume that you're at least persuaded that the Bible in some sense comes from God. But if that's the case, in what sense does the Bible come from God? Can we really stake our eternal souls on each and every individual word? You know, maybe it is just the big ideas that we should be concerned with and not so much words. Well, this morning I'm going to try to persuade you not just that the Bible contains the words of God, not just that the Bible comes from God in some vague sense, not just that the Bible has a message from God for you, but no, I want to persuade you this morning that each and every one of the individual words of the Bible come from God, that what Scripture says, God says. That's my big point this morning, and that's what I'm going to be aiming at this entire time. Now, let's see if we can set the stage here. Again, the question we're considering is, did God inspire the individual words or just the big ideas? And just as importantly, what difference does it make? Who really cares? That's my first point, which I hope is coming up on the PowerPoint screen right now. Now, among those who believe that the Bible comes from God, there are basically two views here. The first is the option that the vast majority of Christians throughout church history have always believed in. This is the view going back all the way to the early church fathers that God is speaking through the individual words. I won't just dump a bunch of quotes on you now for the sake of time, but this is clearly what, say, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Athanasius, Augustine, Jerome, Aquinas, Wycliffe, Huss, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, all the major Puritans, Whitfield, Wesley, Edward, Spurgeon, Ryle, Martin Lloyd-Jones, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, and basically anybody from church history whose books are still read today believed. And if you want documentation to prove that, talk to me afterwards. I'll be glad to get you to some sources. But this is the first view. God inspired the words of Scripture. The idea for this in technical terms is what's called verbal plenary inspiration, if you care about such things. Verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal meaning words. Plenary meaning meaning all of them is God's speech. The other view, which started becoming popular in the late 1800s, but really got royal in the 1920s, is that God only inspired the big ideas. Not necessarily each word, not all the finer details, but the big ideas. This view goes by several names, partial inspiration, conceptual inspiration, dynamic inspiration, degree inspiration. You really don't need to know all those terms, but the idea is the same. The big ideas about God and humanity and about Jesus, those come from God. But all the fine details about you know, names of cities and uh, maybe the, the length of the days of creation. And, you know, oh, this, this prophecy here, this miracle here, those don't necessarily come from God, just the big ideas. Now, what a lot of people don't realize is that whenever you say God inspired the big ideas but not the words, you automatically do two other things. Realize this always happened. Two other things automatically come about when you say that God just inspired the ideas. First, you open the door to the possibility of mistakes and contradictions being in the Bible. And it just automatically happens. You just instantly, pardon me, I'm getting feedback from this thing. I'm not doing anything wrong here, taking off my jacket. I always feel a little bit wrong. You know, that's how tradition works. Tradition can kind of, you know, before long you think you're doing something wrong when you actually aren't. But anyway, I've found that it helps with this microphone for some reason to take my jacket off. Maybe it's, it's a sign, isn't it? Anyway... Where was I? Um, 
you instantly open the door to the possibility of there being mistakes. Because, you know, say Abraham or Moses or David, maybe he got the details wrong. He got the big idea there, but maybe he was wrong about this taking place in Hebron or wrong about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. That automatically happens. You open the door to contradictions and mistakes being in the Bible. And we know that this is exactly what has happened in those denominations that embrace this view. You go back to the denominations that 150 years ago started saying that God inspired the big ideas but not the words. Trace this out. But they're the very same denominations today who have redefined marriage or are marrying and ordaining homosexuals. They're denying that Jesus is the only way to heaven. They're worshiping alongside Muslims and Hindus, that sort of thing. Those very same denominations 150 years ago began saying it's the big ideas, not the words that come from God. But here's the second thing you automatically do. Second, you make yourself and not the Bible the authority. Do you understand why? You make yourself and not the Bible the authority. And the reason for that is, how do I determine which words come from God and which ones don't? How do I determine which ideas are the big important ideas and which ideas are just kind of suggestions to be discarded? I determine that. It's left up to me. If I like a word or a phrase or an idea, if I feel like it comes from God, I go with that. I believe it. But if I don't like the idea, if it doesn't strike me right, I discard it. But either way, I become the authority in determining what comes from God. Augustine wasn't addressing this view, but about 1,600 years ago, he said something very relevant. He said, if you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. I'm afraid a lot of that is going on with this idea that God gave us the big ideas, but not every word. People just kind of find there what they want to find and what they like, as opposed to letting God rule their lives. Ultimately, this view that God only inspired the big ideas, it ultimately results in a very vague, squishy view of the Bible and a very vague, squishy Christianity. Instead of reading the Bible carefully to trust and obey it, you just kind of skim through it to get the big idea. You know, you'd never bother reading the entire Bible over and over and over again. You just sort of learn the biggest events, the greatest hits, and move on. Scripture memory obviously falls by the wayside because I might be memorizing wrong ideas, wrong concepts. Careful Bible translations are, are replaced by loose paraphrases. You'd never defend some of these difficult doctrines, you know, say young earth creationism or predestination or male spiritual leadership or the exclusivity of Jesus because a lot of those hinge on very careful translations and words. Before long, things like Jesus' virgin birth, the resurrection, traditional marriage, they also fall by the wayside because who knows, maybe they're not inspired at all. And even the way we train pastors changes. Why bother having pastors learn Greek and Hebrew? You know, if it's just the big ideas, let's instead train pastors in marketing and in fundraising. I'm serious. This is exactly what happens. All right, is this going to work? Can you, hear, can you hear that feedback? It's not just all in my head? Anyway, can you see how this is actually a big deal? Did God inspire every last word or just maybe some big concepts? How you answer that question has enormous implications for every area of life. And it's basically the difference between New Testament Christianity and sort of a Christianized paganism sprinkled with Bible verses. Well, that's setting the stage. But like I said, I'm trying to persuade you this morning that every last word of the Bible comes from God. What Scripture says, God says. So let me now give you three reasons 
to believe that God inspired the individual words of the Bible, not just the big ideas. Three reasons why God inspired the individual words of the Bible, not just the ideas. Reason number one, common sense and linguistics tells us that if you change a word, you change the meaning. Now, what I'm going to try to explain here is that when it comes to communication, the unit of communication is the individual word, not the big thought. Thoughts are made up of individual words, and as soon as you change an individual word, you've changed the thought. And this is really manifest if you just think about it. Let me give you some examples of this. Say you're introducing your wife, and you say, this is my wife. She'll probably respond kindly. But say you're introducing your wife, and you say, this is my woman. How do you think she's going to respond? Probably not so positively. Say you're talking to your fiancé, and your fiancé says, I love you. And say you respond back, I like you. What do you think is going to happen there? It's one word, isn't it? But a vast, vast difference. This is why real estate agents, when they're trying to sell a house, they avoid the word house and they use the word home. Why is that? Funeral directors, they never talk about the corpse in the casket, the cadaver in the casket. They talk about the departed loved one in the casket. Why is that? Here's maybe a good way to illustrate this. Say you're going out to breakfast and you ask for a nice place, a plate of hot bacon, and instead they give you a nice plate of hot broccoli, are you going to be very happy? I would not. There's a vast difference between yes and no, between left and right, between up and down, between off and on. There's a huge difference between I'd like to eat a sandwich and I'd like to eat a salamander. Do you see the point I'm trying to make? One word makes all the difference, and we understand that because the word is the unit of communication. As I was preparing the sermon last week, I was very attuned to these things, and in one day came across a handful of instances where an argument hinged on one word. Uh, you know, I see one of my kids crying, and I say, uh, did you hit your brother? Oh, no, I did not hit my brother. I would never hit my brother. Why would, I, why would you think I hit my brother? Well, well, why is he crying? Oh, I kicked my brother. Uh, I... I you understand what I'm getting at. Common sense tells us that if you change a word, you inevitably change the meaning, and that's because the unit of communication is always not the big thought, but the individual word. You might illustrate it this way. Say you want to build a house, maybe we should say a home, and you want to hire a carpenter. And the carpenter says, you know, I'm really not into the fine details. I'm just into building houses, complete big houses. You know, I don't bother much about screws and nails and cutting boards and measuring things. You know, I just build complete houses. You know, if a carpenter talked that way, would you hire him? You'd think this guy's crazy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. We understand that big things are composed of all sorts of little details, and if you get the little details wrong, the entire structure collapses. This is exactly how the Bible works. It makes a world of difference whether or not Jesus is God or a God. Whether or not hell is eternal or just a really long time. Whether or not Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, or a way, a truth, and a life. You see? Now let me see if I can explain this in slightly more technical terms. You've probably heard of linguistics before. Linguistics is the study of language. Language form, language meaning. And it's actually a fascinating tool that can enhance Bible study. I took a course in seminary that applied linguistics to New Testament Greek, and it transformed the way I used Greek. But one of the things that, that linguistics teaches us is that all words have different nuances. Every single word is a different nuance. That's why these words exist. 
And even among synonyms, their nuances carry an enormous weight of meaning. And those meanings convey different ideas. So let me see if I can illustrate this simply. Imagine the word toilet. Think of synonyms for toilet. You could probably think of a dozen synonyms for toilet right now off the top of your head. You know, there's the commode, there's the latrine, the restroom, the john, and some others that I probably shouldn't say from the pulpit. Those are all synonyms for toilet, but their nuances convey totally different meanings. So let's, let's imagine something. Say I'm home, and I'm occupied, and my phone rings. And one of my sons picks up the phone, and uh, they say, uh, could I talk to Pastor Tim? And they say, no, my dad, I'm sorry, he's using the restroom. That'd be totally fine, wouldn't it? Let's back up, let's try it again. Uh, the phone rings, my son picks up the phone, where's your dad? Oh, he's sitting on the throne. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't be too happy if he answered that. Now, now did he... Use a synonym for toilet? He did, but the nuance conveys an entirely different meaning, a meaning I'm not crazy about. You following me? Charles Ryrie explains well how this applies to the Bible when he writes this. Some are willing to acknowledge that the concepts of the Bible are inspired, but not the words. Supposedly, this allows for an authoritative conceptual message to have been given, but using words that can, in some instances, be erroneous. The obvious fallacy in this is how are concepts expressed? Through words. Change the word and you have changed the concepts. You cannot separate the two. In order for concepts to be inspired, it is imperative that the words that express them be also. Does that make sense? Now, for those of you who are astute, you might be wondering about Bible translations. How does this all apply to Bible translations? For the Bible was originally written in Hebrew and Greek with a little bit of Aramaic in there. So those are the words that are inspired by God. Those are the inerrant words, the Greek, the Hebrew, the Aramaic. However, Christians have always treasured and loved Bible translation, translating those Greek and Hebrew words into other languages. And something else we learn from linguistics, it's actually fascinating, you can take any word in any language and successfully translate it into another language. It's almost miraculous when you get into this, and I actually think it's part of the handiwork of God. Take any word in any language on the planet, it can be successfully translated into any other language. Now, it might take two, three, four words in the second language, but the, 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 the words can be successfully translated. And if any of you have had experiences learning foreign languages, you'll know what I'm talking about. So when it comes to the Bible, God inspired the Greek, the Hebrew, the Aramaic words. What Moses, Samuel, David, Paul, Peter wrote. And yet, he did it in such a way that those words can be translated so that we can get the word of God into every language on the planet so that people can hear about Jesus and be saved. And that's something we should praise God for. So this is my first reason for believing that God inspired the individual words and not just the concepts. Common sense, and even more so linguistics, tells us that if you change a word, you change the meaning, inevitably. But that's not all. Consider with me, secondly, the Bible's constant concern for the individual words of the Bible. And if you've read the Bible, you'll know this is everywhere. The Bible is extremely concerned about the preservation, the proper use of, the careful, careful reading of the individual words. Now, there are so many ways that we could come at this point. Uh, I'll actually kind of summarize some things here. Maybe you could take one of these ideas and explain, explore it more on your own. But we could begin with a simple fact that God speaks in the Bible, and he speaks in human language. Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God didn't just think a thought, 
let there be light, but he said, let there be light, and light came about. Exodus 6.26, the Lord said to Aaron and Moses, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. The Lord didn't just kind of give this impression to Moses and Aaron. He didn't just kind of move in them, go get the sons of Israel out of Egypt. No, he spoke and said, go get the Israelites and bring them out of Egypt. I could give you literally about a zillion examples of this. God could have communicated through mental telepathy if he wanted to. He could have just given us these vague, wordless impressions. But instead, he didn't. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob spoke to humans using human language and individual words. So are we then to turn around and just say it's just the concepts and not the words that come from God? We could also make this point by considering all the warnings in the Bible where God threatens terrible things to those who tamper with his words. This comes up several times. Deuteronomy 4.2, You shall not add to the word that I command to you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God. Proverbs 30, verse 5, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and be found a liar. Maybe most famously, the Revelation 22.18 passage that I just read to begin our sermon. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Do you get the point? You don't tamper with God's words. You don't change a single one. You don't add. You don't subtract. You leave it as is. Otherwise, you invite terrible things upon yourself. We could come at this point by considering the simple truth that God cannot lie. God can do anything, but the one thing God's not interested in doing is lying. He's told us this, Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. God can't lie. So if the Bible is from God in some sense, and if that God can't lie, that Bible can't have lies in it. There's nothing in the Bible that's misleading, deceptive, erroneous. And since God's knowledge is limitless in every direction, he's not going to affirm anything in the Bible that's contrary to fact. But maybe the best way to prove this point that God, that his inspiration comes through words, is to just look at those passages in Scripture where an entire argument hinges on the use of one word. Do you notice that these are there? Entire arguments totally hinging on the use of, sometimes the tense of, one word. For example, in Galatians 3.16, Paul writes this, The promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and offsprings, referring to many, but rather to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Do you follow Paul's argument there? The entire reason why the promises are pointing to Jesus is because Moses used a singular, not a plural. I think that pretty clearly implies the entire idea here that God is inspiring individual words. Here's another one from Jesus. We'll talk more about Jesus in a second. But think through his argument in Mark 24, pardon me, 12:24. Jesus said to them, "Is this not the reason you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob?" He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Do you follow his reasoning there? His entire argument is built on individual words, again, implying that those individual words come from God. Now, when we say that God inspired the individual words, 
don't hear me saying things that I'm not saying. We're not saying that God dictated every single word, that, you know, Moses just sat there and listened and, and God said, write this, and he wrote that. No, there's obviously human personality coming through, different authors using different vocabulary, writing their own particular style. Clearly that's there. God used people like Moses, David, Isaiah, Peter, Paul, so forth, to write, those, to write the books of the Bible. And yet what we are saying is that through his sovereign power, he so controlled everything that even incorporating their personalities, vocabulary, so forth, even then they're still writing only in all that God wanted them to write. And to get really deep, God worked sovereignly all throughout their lives to prepare them to write exactly what they would write later on in life. You see what I'm saying? God sovereignly wanted Moses to grow up in the household of Egypt so that he'd be so eloquent so that then he could write Exodus exactly like he wrote it. It's mind-blowing, but it's welcome to studying God. It's just like Peter said in first, or pardon me, 2 Peter 1.20. Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible's primary author is God. He controlled what the human authors wrote, and he determined what they wrote down to each and every individual word. Well, let me give you a third and final reason to believe that God inspired not just the big ideas, but the individual words. Jesus clearly believed that God inspired the individual words of the Bible. Jesus clearly believed that God inspired the individual words of the Bible, Therefore, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you need to embrace Jesus' view of the Bible as well. Now, honestly, this is probably the easiest way to address this question, just to look at Jesus' use of Scripture, because it's fascinating. And as you do that, you've got to ask yourself, do I have the same view of Scripture that Jesus has? But just go through the Gospels and look at how he debates, say, the Pharisees. He'll, he'll throw out a passage of Scripture, usually cite it entirely, and that'll shut him up. They're like, good point, never thought of that. We're not going to mess with you anymore. Look at the way in which he engages with the devil in the wilderness. Every time he quotes, he doesn't just throw out a big concept. He quotes specific words, often coming from Deuteronomy, and that causes the devil to flee from him. In John 10, 35, Jesus quotes Psalm 82. Psalm 82 is interesting because it says it's a psalm of Asaph. And yet Jesus uses that and treats it as a word from God. And what does he say about Psalm 82? Scripture cannot be broken. Scripture can, he was talking about a psalm of Asaph when he said that. He's viewing the words that are in the Bible, written by these human authors, as the words of God. Speaking of the law of Moses, Jesus said in Matthew 8, 8, or pardon me, 5.18, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, do you know what an iota and a dot are? We don't have them in our language, but they're the very smallest parts of the Hebrew language, the dot and the iota. Uh, they'd be similar in our language to dotting I's and crossing T's. And what Jesus is saying is that everything in God's word will come to pass, down to every I being dotted, every T being crossed. Even the minutest detail will come to pass. Therefore, in Jesus' mind, again, what Scripture says, God says. One more fascinating example of this is in Matthew 19. Turn there with me. We're approaching the end, so let's turn there to Matthew 19. And I want you to see the way in which Jesus uses Scripture here. 
Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, 4, we read this. He, it's talking about Jesus, Matthew 19, 4. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, as you can see in this passage, Jesus is quoting scripture. And he quotes Genesis 2.24 to defend marriage. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now if you look at verse 6 here, Jesus draws an application from Genesis 2.24. He says in verse 6, What God has joined together, let not man separate. Now tune in. This is where you've got to put your thinking cap on. Follow this, and this is huge. But in Matthew 19, who does Jesus think said Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Who did Jesus see as saying that? God. You see that? Because he says, have you not read that he who created them did this? He clearly sees that phrase as coming from God. The funny thing is, if you go back to Genesis 2, God is not the speaker of, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. It's Moses who writes that. And yet, in Jesus' mind, he interprets what Moses wrote as coming from God. Did you follow that? In the event I wasn't clear enough, let me read what B.B. Warfield writes on this. This is fascinating. This passage, he's talking about Matthew 19, 4 and following, does not give us a saying of God's recorded in Scripture, but just the word of Scripture itself, and can be treated as a declaration of God's only on the hypothesis that all Scripture is a declaration of God's. His, talking about Jesus' testimony, is that whatever stands written in Scripture is a word of God. Now, the reason I point this out is because occasionally you'll encounter people who try to pit Jesus against other parts of the Bible. This actually comes up a lot, especially these days. They might admire Jesus and think he's a good religious teacher, but then they'll say, you know, Jesus never spoke a word against homosexuality. Or, you know, I, I could, I, I'm glad to follow Jesus and love my neighbor and so forth, but I could not believe in a God who call, called Joshua to destroy the Canaanites. People try to pit different parts of the Bible against one another. But we've got to say as kindly and as clearly as we can that Jesus won't allow that view. If you revere Jesus, if you think people should follow Jesus, you also need to embrace his view of Scripture. You need to believe in the divine inspiration of every last word, for this is exactly what Jesus taught. So for these three reasons, and actually for several more that we don't have time to get into, you can and should be totally confident that God inspired not just the big ideas, but the individual words of the Bible. Common sense tells us that this is how communication works. The entire Bible is constantly concerned with neither adding nor taking away from the words of God. And Jesus himself, our great God and Savior, he believed that every last word of Scripture would most certainly come to pass, down to the T's being crossed and the I's being dotted. The Bible teaches that what Scripture says, God says, and that ought to be your view of Scripture as well. Now, like I've been doing, let me recommend to you a book in the event you want to explore this more. I actually have a ton of resources on this topic. So if there's something more academic you want to look into or something more specific on a particular topic, talk to me. I can get you to some other resources. But if you're looking for just a kind of an introductory overview of these issues, check out John MacArthur's final word, Why We Need the Bible. It's not in the church library yet. 
maybe one day. But it's entitled Final Word, Why We Need the Bible by John MacArthur. It's short, introductory, wonderful kind of overview of this entire topic, how God speaks through his word. But again, if you're looking for more academic or specific things, talk to me and I can get you some of those at the door. Now let's close up with some application. I recognize that this is kind of heady, kind of technical, but I hope you understand why it's so important. Let's wrap up with some application. How should we then live? If God inspired the words, and not just the big ideas, so what? And let me give you several specific applications here. First, understand and believe that to disobey or, diso or disbelieve any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God himself. Understand and believe that to diso disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God himself. Again, I could show you that this is, in fact, Jesus' view of the Bible. This is why Jesus said in Luke 24, 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. This was the Apostle Paul's view of Scripture. In 2 Peter 3, he writes, Remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. And this is why Jesus says in John 15, 20, If they kept my word, they'll keep yours as well. Every word in Scripture is a word of God. It's as if God had written it with his own hand. It can be believed. It can be trusted. Therefore, to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God himself. Now, at this point, I want to ask you bluntly, is that your view of the Bible? Seriously. Confrontation time. Is that your view of the Bible? What the Bible says, God says. In this world that's increasingly hostile to the Bible, in this world where the cultural pressure to compromise Scripture is becoming almost unbearable, in this world where the Bible is mocked literally every day on the news, on the Internet, on Facebook, will you stake your eternal soul on the trustworthiness and the authority of the Bible as the Word of God? In our world where Satan will use absolutely everything to distract you from the Bible, to keep you so preoccupied that you never have time to read the Bible, Will you put aside your phone, put aside Facebook, put aside Wheel of Fortune and spend time reading Scripture, hearing from God? Is that your view of the Bible? This brings me to a second application. If you don't already, read the Bible and read it carefully. Read the Bible and read it carefully and ideally read the entire thing over and over again. Now I realize this is obvious, but it's easy to overlook. You know, if God has given us this priceless treasure in Scripture, this inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, unified book, if he's given this to us and we believe that, why in the world would we then allow it to gather dust on our shelves? Makes no sense. Makes you wonder if you actually believe what you profess. So put down your smartphone, turn off your television, shut down the computer, stop texting, and make time to hear from God through his word. I really believe that all of us should make it a goal to spend at least a little bit of time every day reading God's Word. It doesn't need to be hours on end, but 10 minutes, 20 minutes, communing with God through His Word. Maybe make it a goal to read through the entire thing every year or five. But again, it makes no sense to profess that you believe in this view of Scripture and then not take advantage of it. So read your Bible. Third application. If all that we've been saying this morning about the Bible is true, let us share God's word confidently, freely with others. 
You can have total confidence when you speak the word of God that you're speaking on God's behalf because his inspiration extends down to the individual words. So let us share God's word freely, confidently, boldly, lovingly, wisely with all those that we have opportunity. At the edge of your kid's bed, around the lunch table this afternoon, around the water cooler with your coworkers, in the hallways after this sermon. Tell others of what God has done in the Bible. Open your mouth and lovingly speak the truth. Again, it only makes sense if this is what we believe about the Bible. Quickly, another application. Support the work of Bible translation from the original languages. Support the work of Bible translation from the original languages. I've said these statistics before, but today there are 7,000 languages, not dialects, but 7,000 languages, and of those, take a guess how many have a complete Bible, completely translated into that language. Only 550. 7,000 languages, 550 have the complete Bible, and many of those translations are not good quality. They need to be improved. 1,300 languages have the New Testament, but get this, there are 2,700 languages that don't have a single verse in their language. 2,700 languages. That translates into 380 million people. Not a single verse of scripture in their language. So we are talking about millions and millions of men and women, boys and girls, who do not know the Lord Jesus, who really have almost no access to the gospel because it hasn't been translated into the language that they speak. Now, like I said earlier, God's word can be successfully translated into every language on the planet. Praise God for that. We can take the inerrant, inspired Greek and Hebrew words and put them into any language. So if you believe what we're talking about this morning about the Bible, support the work of Bible translation from the original languages. Pray for it. Give toward it. Consider if the Lord's calling you to be a Bible translator. If you're looking for a specific ministry that's doing this well, check out Bibles International, a ministry our church supports. But again, it only makes sense if we believe in the inspiration of the Bible. Quickly, fifth application. Join a local church that believes in the inerrancy of the Bible and that carefully teaches and preaches the Bible. Now, obviously, our church believes in the inerrancy of the Bible. I hope you understand that. But if you ever, for whatever reason, relocate from here, moved away for a job or something like that, or if you become displeased for a church for some reason and desire to join a new church, find out, does that church believe in the inerrancy of the Bible? Ask the pastor, do you believe in the inerrancy of the Bible? Check out their doctrinal statement. Do they use the term inerrancy? And if they don't or won't, I'd encourage you to keep moving. But we don't just want to find a church that confesses a belief in inerrancy. We want to find one that functionally practices a belief in inerrancy. So do they preach and teach specific passages of Scripture? Do they make points based on carefully reading the Bible in context? Do they encourage Scripture memory and careful Bible reading? Do they take a stand on the fundamentals of the faith without watering them down? For as important as your doctrinal statement is, just as important is your practice and whether or not that's consistent with a belief in inerrancy. One final application. There are actually more. Discuss these around the table, this, the lunch table this afternoon. Discuss these in your growth groups. But one final application. And it's with this that we'll close. But if the very words of the Bible are coming from God, it is urgent and imperative that you turn from your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus. It is urgent and imperative that right now, this morning, you turn from your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus. 
Why do I say that? Well, if Jesus meant what he said and said what he meant, then you are in an incredibly dangerous position if you're not yet united to Jesus by faith. For instance, in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Ponder just for a moment if every last one of those words is the very word of God. He is the way. There's no other way. He is the truth. He's both the author of truth and the truth to be believed for eternal life. He is the life. You'll never find eternal life anywhere else. And he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you don't go through Jesus, if you won't go through Jesus, you are utterly without hope. You'll be plagued by a guilty conscience. You'll be plagued by fear in this life. And after this life, you'll be cast into hell eternally. And I can say that to you so confidently because I believe every last word of the Bible comes from God. And yet here's something else Jesus said. And again, Jesus said what he meant and meant what he said. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Again, just imagine what that means if every single one of those words is objectively true from God. Are you feeling heavy laden? Does your life feel like a laborious burden? Jesus is offering you rest. He's inviting you now to come to him. Come to him for life. Abundant life in this world and eternal life in the life to come. That's the invitation of the gospel to you. So right now, if you've never turned from your sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus, do it right now. Right now. Turn to Jesus. Embrace him. Take his yoke upon your shoulders and find rest for your soul. If the very words of the Bible and not just the big ideas come from God, it is urgent, it is imperative that you turn from your sins and trust Jesus today. And Jesus is offering you, he is inviting you to come to him now that you might have life. So trust Jesus this morning. Trust him now. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss any of this further, need clarification on something that I've said would even like to gently challenge something that I've said. Would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you. Please talk to me after today's service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus today. And today receive that gift of eternal life Jesus is offering to you. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your precious word. Uh, thank you for the way that you didn't speak in sort of vague impressions that we might get wrong, but you spoke clearly and in individual words, words that we can trust, words that we can hope in. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for the miracle, really, of the way in which these words can be translated into different languages, and thank you for the English translations that we have that we can enjoy so that we can hear you speaking to us today. Oh, Lord, give us a greater love for your word really a, a willingness to be faithful unto it, unto death if need be. And for all those within the hearing of my voice who have not yet put their hope in Jesus, we pray that today, that now would be the time that they turn to him and be saved. It's in his name we pray, amen.